Welcome to my podcast, Transform with Lisa Masters, stories of business, birth and life. I work with women all over the world to recognize their own personal worth and how to live a life aligned with that worth. On this podcast, I explore stories of business, birth and life. Listen and be inspired by how the work these women did on their journey transformed their entire lives. Let's dive in. On today's episode, I'm joined by my friend, author and writer, Kim Locke. Kim shares with us many of her life lessons, including moving through her shock first pregnancy and a traumatic postpartum, to becoming a breastfeeding and mothering mentor. She explores her change of career from graphic designer to published author and the devastating effects anxiety and panic attacks have had on her ability to live her life freely. And finally, She offers up the wisdom she discovered by learning to find and value her true self. Hi, Kim. Welcome. Hi, Lisa. Very, very excited for our conversation. I was thinking um, when I was going to ask the question about things starting for you and I was like, hmm, what am I going to ask? Because there's so many interesting things that you've accomplished through your life. I thought actually I might start with how long we've known each other and I have to like really cast back. So (laughs) yeah, is, is it about 20 years? Oh, it's a long, it's a long time. Oh, that's so interesting because I was thinking the same thing. I was like, where are we going to start? I have got a feeling I was 20 when I met you. Yeah, right. So I was about right, 20 years. Yeah, you were working as a graphic designer and I came in to manage the business and yeah, we became friends. And I guess fast forward many years to you having your first baby and I guess what this community will be interested in hearing about is some of the learnings you had as a new mother and then how they changed and transitioned as you had your second baby and I think too during that time also transitioned from graphic designer into published author. Mm. Okay so my eldest is 15 so my husband is ex-defence force. Uh, At the time he was in the Air Force and we'd just moved to Canberra. We'd been living together for a few years. We were in Darwin, then Melbourne, then we'd moved to Canberra and we'd only been there, I don't know, a week or two. And I just remember thinking that Canberra smelt really bad. (laughs) I remember we got there and I'd never, ever been to Canberra in my life and we didn't have a house yet. So we were staying in a service department in the city and we were waiting for a defence house. And he had gone straight up to work. It was just after Christmas and I just couldn't get over how uh, uncomfortable and miserable I was there. I don't know what prompted me to take a pregnancy test. I mean, I'd been on the pill for years, but I'd recently 
changed pills. I knew I'd had a gap in taking the pill. And so I thought, well, I'll just do a pregnancy test to rule that out because I'm sure it's not that, but I did a pregnancy test and it just ruled it right in. (laughs) Mm. I remember how shocked and not just shocked, almost like not allowed you felt. I felt like a pregnant teenager. I was 24. I was married. The way you were acting was as if you felt like this was something really naughty. Yeah, it was so naughty. I was so ashamed. I felt like such an idiot. Like I was like, you are an idiot. You know about contraception. And and then so I thought, oh, it must be wrong. And then I did another test and it still said I was pregnant. And I didn't know what to do. Like I didn't know what to do. So I read the instructions in the pregnancy test that said, (laughs) call your doctor. So of course I'm in a city. I don't have a doctor. I rang the closest GP clinic to me geographically. And I said to the receptionist, do you have a female doctor on staff? And I made an appointment with her and I went in and I said, I think I might be pregnant. And she's like, what makes you say that? And I'm like, I've done two pregnancy tests and they're both positive. And she's like, well, you are pregnant. And I said, no, but don't you need to check? Don't you need, like, I was like, you're the doctor. You need to confirm this for me for sure. And she said, well, the test I'll give you is the same test you bought from the chemist. So we'll send you off for a blood test anyway, but you are pregnant. This is so interesting, right? Because down for the decades, Hmm. we've Hmm. got very different views about what our bodies do and our autonomy and all of that jazz. But I mean, the experience you're having, this kind of so removed from your own knowing, your own power of what you do with your body. It was like Mm. so many women feel like that, right? Like we're not connected. And it's also, we look so outside of ourselves for this permission or approval or even like confirmation of something. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, when I look back in hindsight, what I see is that I felt like I had stepped into a zone, like I'd messed with something I shouldn't have, like I'd messed with a part of me that didn't belong to me. You know, it was sort of like now, oh, now look what you've done. It's almost like my reproductive self was just something I'd never considered and and it didn't belong to me. And, And so I was sort of looking at this GP going, help, what do I do? I really just felt like I'd stepped somewhere that wasn't I, I wasn't meant to be and that w- was not for me, almost like I'd, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a, of a metaphor, but like I'd accidentally stepped into a designer store like Chanel or something and the sales staff were looking at me like, oh, you're in the wrong shop because I kind of had this sense that women who were pregnant were these soft glowing maternal figures who loved children and loved babies and wanted to have all the babies and wanted to be mothers I had this real dichotomy this either you Mm. absolutely do not want to be pregnant and it's a complete accident and a complete mistake or it's something that you want with your whole being and like you plan it we're ready to start trying yeah, or something like taking, that. Yeah. You're taking the folate and you're, you know, you're a wear pregnant couple. So this was 2007. It was just prior to social media really taking off. I didn't know anybody where I was living. The only other person I'd known who was close to me who'd been pregnant was my sister who had had a baby a few years earlier and it was a planned pregnancy and I really didn't have that much to do with her. You know, she was also serving in the military so she had a private obstetrician. It was all neat and so I just felt so completely out of my depth but what I struggled with was this not knowing what I wanted to do. I remember sitting there in the doctor's office crying sheets of tears and she said, do you want to be pregnant? And I was like, I don't know. 
I just don't know. And it went on for weeks. Of course, she was like, when was your last period? And I didn't know because I'd been changing pills. So, you know, my poor body was just so messed up. When I sort of was able to work out roughly when the last one was, she said, you're anything from five weeks to like 14 weeks pregnant. Do you think that's part of it? Is that we just totally as young women are alienated from what our bodies are doing because we're encouraged to disconnect from it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is really true. I think alienation is a good word. And that would be that what happened to me was basically when I was a teenager and started menstruating and started getting acne, I went on the pill and that just took all that away from me. It's like, now I don't have to think about that. I don't ever have to worry about that. And so, of course, when I found myself pregnant, I think that's why it just created this huge sense of dissonance because all of a sudden it's like a part of my body that I'd never had to think about before, Mm. but I didn't feel any ownership over it. I think that's that's probably the best way to describe it is I felt like it was something that was happening inside my body, but it felt almost parasitic to the point where my brain and my identity was so rooted in being not pregnant and not ever thinking about reproduction that when it happened to me, it felt beyond just how is this happening? Because I know physiologically and biologically how it happened, but it was sort of this kind of almost on a soul level, how is this happening? Because this is just, it's not part of me. It's not part of who I am. There's nothing in my identity that identified as a fertile woman or a reproductive woman or maternal And then, of course, I went for a blood test. Yes, I was pregnant. I went for an ultrasound so that they could determine how pregnant I was. And when I went back to the doctor, you know, she's like, okay, you are definitely pregnant. Do you want to be pregnant? It was like she was speaking another language to me because to have an abortion, I would have known definitively that I didn't want to be pregnant. I didn't know that. And in hindsight, I probably just didn't want to admit it. I need somebody else to validate for me how I felt. But of course, I told very few people. Of course, I rang you and told you. And you reminded me that I was a grown-ass married woman and and I was allowed to have sex with my husband and get pregnant. Like, these things were totally okay. (laughs) Blunt talking even way back then. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But also, I mean, probably was also quite insensitive to the trauma you were feeling around having found this out and feeling so separated from it. Like for me, it was deep in the, well, yes, you're a married woman now. Of course, the next step's having a baby. So it it is quite interesting that you were going through this kind of turmoil. And whilst I could remind you that indeed you were allowed to have all of these things, I also wasn't acknowledging the pain and trauma that you were feeling about being in that situation. But if I look back now, 41-year-old Kim looks back now at 24-year-old Kim I would say to her, you clearly don't want to be pregnant. You clearly don't. Do you want to talk about that? We live and learn. And obviously I have a 15 year old now and I firmly believe that was meant to happen. I was meant to have her because the lessons I've gone through have showed me where I have let go of so much crap, genetic crap that's been holding me back. My husband, Ben, he was like, well, I'm happy. So I thought, okay, I guess we're happy. And I just went and I just kind of rolled with it. I would have been, I don't know, maybe 10 weeks or so pregnant. And I was still going back to see this GP who really wasn't doing much for me other than making sure I wasn't dead, I suppose. At one point, she handed me this brochure. And I distinctly remember it was called Having a Baby in Canberra. And it had all your options in it. But it had in there an information session. And when I was at this seminar, I saw a brochure stand 
And there was a doula in the brochure stand and I'd never heard of a doula before, but as I was reading the brochure, it said, I'll be with you and I'll know you. And that really struck a chord with me because that's what I needed. I needed somebody who was going to be completely on my side, who would know me. And that was probably the moment my (laughs) entire life changed (laughs) because she became a really good friend and she was the first person I'd ever met who introduced me to the idea that pregnancy and birth not only belonged to me, but it actually wasn't this horrible, terrifying, degrading, undignified thing that I'd just learned from the movies. Leave your dignity at the door and and that your body is this vessel just constantly waiting for shit to go wrong with it and that the pregnant woman just, you know, you take your hands off the wheel and the doctors have got you now kind of thing, not just during birth, but during pregnancy as well. She introduced me to the concept that actually, you know, it just belonged to me. I was still seeing the GP when the GP said she should see me. Like she's like, okay, book in at 16 weeks. Was anything that you were seeing the GP for useful to you? What did they give you? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. But Mm. at the time I just thought it was what you were meant to do. Sure. And I just thought that if there was something catastrophic about to go wrong, she would head that off. Um, sure yeah (laughs) case I like exploded and took out a you know some innocent bystanders or something I mean this is the thing though right we're so steeped in the good girl of what we think we should do and what we're led to believe we should do and so we go along with it even when it gives us nothing and we're not even asked to reflect if it's giving us something and then yet over here someone completely outside of the system can give us so much such an interesting parallel isn't it and yet women continue to participate in this routine, give nothing care. Wouldn't it have been amazing if this GP said to you, hey, you don't need to come and see me. Yeah, You've that's got right. this handled. You look how healthy and well you are. You know, there's nothing I can do for you, but it's kind of like it, it continues to feed this idea of reliance on them. Yeah, that's right. And I think that if she had said, like you said, you're clearly healthy, you don't have to keep coming to me. But the fact that I went routinely and she did nothing but kept telling me when the next appointment should be, I was in the mindset of something can go wrong at any minute, obviously. Mm. So I had that very common pregnancy mindset of I am a catastrophe waiting Mm. to happen. Mm. So the fact that she never said to me, hey, you're healthy, come back to me when you're you know, legs falling off or something. It's super important for the system to maintain this belief in women that something could go horribly wrong at any time and you'd be the negligent one for not maintaining these meetings even though they give you nothing. So, I mean, it's interesting, right? It's kind of like the subliminal messaging. Unless they're over here, you know, the one thing that I do think early prenatal care can be really useful for is helping women understand nutrition and the valuable part that nutrition plays in the physiology of pregnancy in you know building blood volume and those sorts of things to help the body grow this baby over time but every time I ask a woman if that's been discussed they always say no yeah that's right I mean the the constant touching base with the medical system is to reinforce that belief that pregnancy is an inherent medical condition waiting to happen Then I was starting to meet with my doula and she'd given me some books to read, you know, how I love books to read. And I read Ina Mae Gaskin's Guide to Childbirth, which is the first time I'd ever read anything like that. I'd never, ever seen or heard of the concept that birth was actually something our bodies are evolved to go through and can handle just perfectly. My doula was a lot of support for me. I started off my pregnancy terrified of giving birth, got towards the end of my pregnancy. And so many of those fears were 
not gone by any means, but at least allayed, you know, I sort of had more of an understanding of the physiological process of birth. And I was at least relatively convinced that I could do it. And it didn't have to be as horrible as it was on the movies. The hospital that I was booked in at was a small regional hospital. And at the end of the day, I just lucked out, really. They're known as being one of the better maternity hospitals. I went into labour at 39 weeks. My baby was born. It was pretty routine and standard, really, for hospital. But what was interesting to me is what happened immediately after she was born. I was wheeled into, like, my room on the ward. And I was handed this baby and everyone left. Ben left, midwives left, the lights were off. And I had this baby and I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. It was almost like realizing I was pregnant all over again. I just thought, I don't know what I'm doing. And she was very unsettled right from the minute she was born. I couldn't settle her. I remember I kept trying to breastfeed her. And I don't know whether the midwives heard her fussing as the hours went on. I remember one midwife, she just came in and she said, she's not hungry. She just wants to be with you. And she picked her up and she plonked her in my arms. And I remember sitting there going, how am I supposed to sleep? Because of course I was terrified. You're not supposed to sleep with your baby. And I was so tired and there was nobody around. I ended up staying in hospital for about five days because I didn't want to leave. I was so scared. I wanted to breastfeed her because my sister had struggled to breastfeed. I watched her feel a lot of guilt about it. I grew up with my mom always saying, oh, you know, breastfeeding is best, but I couldn't do it for very long. I have two siblings and um, we all knew that she only breastfed us for a few weeks. Then she just ran out of milk or just, you know, the very standard story. And I remember thinking, I want to be able to breastfeed this baby because bottle feeding scared the shit out of me. It seemed like so much hard work. And I thought if I can breastfeed her, if I can do this, then that's something I can do. You know, I sort of, I was really convinced that this baby had come to me without me even trying and we'd gotten through this pregnancy and she was born and everything was fine. My body was clearly doing it. So I really wanted to be able to breastfeed her as well. But she was very unsettled all the time. Like she never settled. I had her at the breast pretty much constantly. And then when I was at home, I think she was about 10 days old, particularly by the afternoon, she would just want to be on the breast all the time. And I was really, really low by this point. And I remember my mum was there. She only stayed for a few days, but I remember her saying, oh, maybe you just don't have enough milk, love. And I was devastated. I remember handing the baby to Ben and I went to bed and I didn't get up again until the next day. He must have gone to, I'm going to get a bit emotional. He must have gone to the supermarket and bought um, a tin of formula. And I remember thinking, that's it, I'm done. I'm not going to have anything to do with this baby. Because I hadn't wanted to be pregnant in the first place, it had just happened to me. And now I knew that if I severed the breastfeeding connection with her, I'd have nothing. I knew I would have to you know, look after this kid that I felt nothing for for the rest of my life. So I think the following afternoon, I remember suddenly something happened. I don't know what it was. So I hadn't seen the baby for all night and all day. My mum and husband must have just been bottle feeding her. That afternoon, I was still in bed and I remember my breasts were enormous so uncomfortable and there was like milk like pouring out of me and I remember looking down in like dismay going I've got milk and I just thought I'm gonna feed her 
And so I fed her. She had a beautiful feed. Something in my brain went, this isn't right. You can feed her. What's going on? Once again, I found a pamphlet. I remembered the hospital sent me home with like this little bag of pamphlets. And one of them was for a breastfeeding helpline. I spoke to this woman. I remember we're still friends now. Um, her name's Janet and she had just had her fifth baby and I remember being mind blown at the time because I was like whoa that's so many babies (laughs) you must really know what you're talking about and so I gave her the whole spiel of what my baby was doing and I said I just don't think I have any milk and she just explained to me that my baby was very normal she explained to me about supply and demand and about how breast milk is a constant secretion. You can actually never run out of it. That baby wanting to feed all the time is very normal and they are meant to suckle frequently and that she's also driving my milk supply and that the more is removed, the more you will make. And there was another life-changing conversation because after that moment, I realized I'd been lied to. My whole fucking life I'd been lied to, just made to believe that my body was faulty. I realized my mom had been lied to, my sister had been lied to. And all of a sudden I had like a cheer squad. I had people going, you can do this. I felt like a shitty mother pretty much since she was born and I still feel like a shit mother some days, but I could breastfeed. And when she was nine months old, I was still breastfeeding and started training as a breastfeeding counsellor. Thank yeah. God for me that you did. <laughs> Thank God for a lot of women, I reckon. <laughs> yes, you were such a, just a force to helping me in my breastfeeding journey and not through anything except that wise voice saying, yep, that's normal. Yep, that's normal. Yep, carry on. It wasn't just your knowledge, it was your style. You didn't teach me anything. You just reassured me that everything I was doing was just exactly what my daughter needed and there was nothing wrong with her and there was nothing wrong with me and you know I've obviously gone on to support many 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 women breastfeeding as well and that kind of style of support you know really underpins what I do as well and I know for women it's really pivotal in how they continue on and feel supported too because I think we have so much access to information these days and it's kind of like do this, do this, learn this, learn this. What you did for me, which was actually take away all of that and just be like, you're enough and demystify some of the challenges that I was having, which is, you know, what happened for you too. It's kind of beautiful, right? It's kind of like this passing down from woman to woman to woman. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your baby. And that really feels like the key to what women need for their breastfeeding journeys. Sometimes they need a little bit of extra help, but most of the time this is all they need. Yeah, I think when I realized that the key to breastfeeding was basically removing that veil of illusion that your body is faulty, it's like something in me was enraged. I just thought the women the world over are just being lied to purely to self-formula to keep them in mistrust of their bodies. So I ended up breastfeeding my daughter for more than five years. Um, I breastfed her through the pregnancy of my son. Uh, which in hindsight, I wouldn't do again. That was a hard time, but I just wanted to know I could do it. And I didn't want to wean her. So she was three, I think, when I became pregnant again. And I had him at home with the same doula. I'd had a midwife through my pregnancy. I didn't do any testing or scans or anything because I really wanted to avoid what I went through with the first pregnancy. I don't want to see my pregnancy as a medical catastrophe waiting to happen. I want to actually connect with it. And I tried to enjoy it as much as I could. I have a lot of female genetic wounding, which means pregnancy is a tricky time for me. So 
so I tried to enjoy it as much as possible and yeah he was brought at home midwife didn't make it because I thought I was going to have heaps and heaps of time and he just kind of popped out (laughs) as they do popped out after dinner and I was really determined that I wasn't going to have the same experience with him that I'd had with my daughter haven't mentioned yet but I actually got diagnosed with postnatal depression when my daughter was four months old I was emotionally suffering because I was alone my partner was in the air force I had no family no friends I was stuck in a house with a really unsettled baby all day every day so of course I was diagnosed with depression I was lonely I was lonely and out of my depth Uh, you know human women are not meant to have babies alone Um, and this so often happens isn't it that we kind of we put this label on women that there's something wrong with them when actually we have an entire society set up to fail women and babies and then we make women responsible for that I'm still only working through that now I mean I'm only getting people now acknowledging my family yeah we kind of should have been there I remember all I wanted was just my family there I didn't want anybody to bathe my baby or feed my baby I just wanted them there and I wanted them to talk to me about human adult things that weren't baby related just companionship because that had all gone for me because prior to being pregnant I worked full-time at a job that I loved you know I was in graphic design I worked in design studios advertising studios as a general ruler wacky creative places and uh all of a sudden I was just had nothing all my identity was gone and it was just be in a house with this baby that you can't make happy I was determined after my son was born that that wasn't going to happen it kind of didn't (laughs) (laughs) but you know some family stuff went down that meant I still couldn't have the support that I needed but as it was I had some really good friends within the breastfeeding association and my local home birth group also my husband took his long service leave so he was home for five months so it was just a completely different time so mostly he was able to just then spend time with our daughter and I just had my son by that point I had the hang of baby wearing you know, I didn't fight the fact that this newborn was going to need me. I used to fight that with her. I thought she's supposed to sleep in a cot. She's mm. supposed to sleep by herself and she never did. So when I always needed to be holding her, there was some voice in my head saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, mm. this is wrong, this is wrong. Mm. You know, you're going to be unhealthily dependent on each other. So whereas with my son, I was like, fuck it, this is what he needs. He's, you know, we're primates. So I just held him all the time. He was still just as unsettled as she was. But it doesn't seem as dramatic to me because it was normal. It was so normal for me. And you didn't fight it. I didn't fight it. And I knew it would pass. You know, my daughter was born just a couple of weeks after your son That's was born. Right, yeah. And maybe from around five months, I started to visit. And even though I had taken on so many lessons from you and modeled my own motherhood around what I had learned from you, there was something so different about witnessing that really change something in my brain when I would see it it was just lovely to be in community yeah together what you just said is really important in that by the time I started to get community I had other women modeling just it's just breastfeeding it's just carrying your baby it's just looking after your baby there is something to be said for talking to other women and let's say talking about breastfeeding but being with a woman who's breastfeeding her child as she goes about her day that's the best way to learn because we're humans. We learn from social cues. I think the reason breastfeeding is hard for so many women is because we just don't see it. We don't see the day-to-day of it. So tell me, during this time, you started writing a mothering blog. It really had a bit of a cult following. And also during your second baby's 
babyhood, you also wrote your first book. Yes. After my daughter was born and I sort of started getting the hang of breastfeeding and I joined the Australian Breastfeeding Association, I started writing articles for their magazine. I always knew that I had a natural talent for writing, but I didn't think it was a thing that I could actually do. The Australian Breastfeeding Association magazine put a call out for letters or articles about breastfeeding an older baby, breastfeeding into toddlerhood. And by that point, I was breastfeeding my two-year-old. I wrote an article about it and sent it into the editor. A few weeks later, I got an email from the editor of that magazine saying, we've had such a good response to your article. Do you have any more? And I went, okay, I'll give it a go. So I started writing the odd article and that then turned into, yeah, a blog just about motherhood and mothering. By that point, I just joined Facebook. I'd write a blog post and I would just post it on Facebook to my friends and they could read it. Because by this point, we'd left Canberra and we were now living in Adelaide. So all my Canberra friends, and this was a way for them to keep in touch with me. And let's face it, anyone who is in this community, we just love anyone saying the same thing because it feels lonely and so to have someone putting thoughts into words was it's exciting it feels it feels validating that's right I didn't write the blog with any intention to be instructional or try and change the world it became sort of an emotional outlet for me just to kind of work through my own demons and the way I did it was maybe a little bit ranty it wasn't read by anybody but my friends and then I remember (laughs) there was a sleep training book came out that everybody all started talking about. That was actually really triggering for me because it was a family joke that I was left to cry alone when I was a baby because I wouldn't stop crying. So I actually found this really triggering. And I wrote this big fucking ranty blog post about what it feels like, about what I'd been through basically in my mothering journey, that I had a really hard time of it when my daughter was born to the point where I was suicidal and I tried so fucking hard to breastfeed and that and what that meant to me and what that meant that you need your baby with you and your baby needs you with you because what I haven't really talked about yet is actually how much surrendering to my human baby's needs and meeting those needs actually healed so many of my own childhood abandonment wounds or or allowed me to at least see where I had childhood trauma which of course my parents just thought they were doing the best they were supposed to do which so many parents are And so when I read this book, it was so triggering. I wrote this ranty blog post and I remember it was called The Liberation of Mothering Instinctively. And I put it on my Facebook page to my friends and I went to bed. When I woke up the next morning, I had all these comments. The blog post had gone viral overnight and it was my first experience of something going viral. I think it had had 12,000 views by the time I got up that morning. Most of my blog posts had had, I don't know, six or 10 views in the past, just my friends. So my friends had read it, shared it. It was my first experience of going viral and it was weird. And of course, after that, my blog had followers and readers. And what that taught me as a writer was how to be more succinct. But what it taught me first was, oh, there's people who want to hear what I have to say. All of a sudden, what I was writing was striking a chord with thousands of people around the world around the world and I thought okay I was writing a novel and the validation of having this blog read really gave me the determination to actually send the novel out for submission because I don't think I would have otherwise it really gave me that sense of no no people do want to read what you have to say so I sent it out of course it got rejected by every single agent and every single large publisher in Australia (laughs) but a local Adelaide publisher picked it up 
and published it. It's called Peace, Love and Khaki Socks. And it was really embraced and loved by the birth community in Australia, I think. I call it like a cult hit. It was definitely something that um, really struck a chord with home birth people because this was all of a sudden their story or something they wanted to read about in novel form. Like I'd struggled with when I was pregnant, generally the fictionalized view of pregnancy and birth is one of that horrible doom and despair. And here was something that was a little bit more realistic. And so the sort of birth community really got behind it and it did really well, which, you know, just opened the door for novel number two and three and four and five about to come out. And five about to come out. So, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. You've had such an interesting journey along the way with so many changes. And so just as your first book launched, you started having your first experiences with some debilitating anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. So that is definitely interesting. I'm going to use the word interesting. Yeah. Look, I experienced my first panic attack when I was going to meet with my publisher for the first time to discuss some structural edits. I was meeting her in a cafe. I'd been so looking forward to it. I was excited. I'd found a a babysitter for the kids. And I sat in the cafe and I just started to feel weird and wrong. And I just had this feeling of, I can't even put it into words. Just this feeling of something being completely wrong with reality. I didn't feel like there was something wrong with my body. I didn't feel like I was having a heart attack. I thought maybe I needed to vomit, but it wasn't that. I thought maybe I was going to get like diarrhea or something. It wasn't that. It's like reality all of a sudden just didn't fit anymore. I didn't know where to put myself. I went to the bathroom. I remember ringing my mum from the bathroom. I'm like, something's going on. And she said to me, can you just like go outside and get some fresh air? And I remember I was sitting at the table outside and I'd rang my husband, Ben, and he didn't know what to do either. He was at work. And then my publisher arrived. And as she was walking towards me, of course, I just was crying, tears pouring down my face. And she should have said, are you okay? And I was like, not really. I feel sick but or something sick. Like I couldn't articulate what was happening in me. I just remember thinking something is very, very, very wrong with reality. Anyway, she was lovely, of course. She went and got me a paper bag. She thought I was hyperventilating. She thought I was nervous. And I tried to breathe into that, but that didn't do anything. And she said, my office is just across the street. Let's go into my office where it's quiet. But then when we got into her office, it was suddenly cool and quiet. And I instantly felt calmer and okay again. And it was fine. We talked about the edits. We did everything we need to do. I went home. I didn't really give it a second thought until a few weeks later, I was talking to somebody And she said to me, that sounds like a panic attack. And I was like, really? I thought panic attacks were like pounding heart, sweaty palms, shortness of breath. And of course it can be. But for me, I can't describe what it felt like. It just felt like reality and being a human felt impossible. After that, I had a word for it. And I don't know whether knowing that it was a panic attack made it better or worse because of course then once I had a word for it as soon as I started to feel a little bit weird I'd go oh my god oh no this is a panic attack which of course makes you have a panic attack because the fear of fear makes it worse and because it had been a meeting with my publisher the first time it happened my brain just associated it with anything to do with book things so it happened at my book launch it started Mm -hmm. happening there I was sailing in for a surprise 
visit to your launch, you know, flown in in secret and <laughs> and I arrived to this. I don't even I know. I in the office, like the book hiding. was happening. You know, my publisher had all her friends. There's wine. There was talking, and I and out in the hall, and I was hiding in the office. It's like we're having a book launch, and the author's not here. <laughs> I remember people saying to me, "You've got to go and see her." And then I just remember walking in, and it was like, "Fuck the surprise! What the fuck is going on?" And of course, because you'd known me for this point by ten years, you've uh-huh. never seen me like that before. I mean, we work together, you know. I can. Do- I've been to your wedding, and you know, like all of this, you know, we've been on holidays together. together. Like I can fly. I can do. I speak in public. I worked at a managerial mm. level. I mean, you worked with me when I was working at a managerial level. All of a sudden, I was this little shell of a person in an. And office. you hadn't told me about any of the previous incidences, so I actually wasn't aware at all. And so I was like. Like, what the fuck? Like, is it this? Is it this? And you were just kind of like mute and unable to function at all. See, this is the other thing too. And I didn't know this until Ben, my husband pointed it out to me because when I'm having a panic attack, I feel like it's completely obvious to everyone. The way I feel on the inside, I feel like is surely reflected on the outside of me. But Ben said, no, you just go really quiet. And I didn't understand until he told me that that the people around me aren't going to actually know what's happening unless they tried to talk to me, in which case they might twig that something's kind of not okay with Kim, but maybe she's just feeling a bit tired or something. So that was really interesting to know that actually the complete pure terror I'm feeling on the inside isn't actually reflected on the outside. The whole time I'd always known you, you're a very vivacious person who is very easy in conversation with people. I mean, that's how I met you. I remember you being this super friendly, talkative person who, you know, I got to know really well, really quickly and definitely through supporting you through those, you know, months and years after your daughter was born, there was a difference to you. That was a really hard time for you, but that felt understandable. This was very strange to me. Yeah. This was like the launch of your freaking book. Yeah. This is like lifelong dream come true. Yes. And I'm hiding in the office. And you know what? 10 years on, I still can't really categorize my panic mm. attacks as panic attacks. I don't know. I got through it. But of course, then it had attached itself to anything book related. So any mm. library talk that I did, I started to get major anxiety for, and then I was invited to speak on a panel in Melbourne about publishing with small presses. I remember getting on the plane, just as the doors closed and the plane starts to shunt backwards. You can't get off that plane. I started having a panic attack. And I remember having to go to the back of the plane, <laughs> having an air hostess sit with me the whole flight. I got to Melbourne. I booked a flight straight back to Adelaide got on the plane and flew straight back. I remember calling my publisher saying, I'm sorry, I can't do the panel. And that was sort of the beginning of the end for me traveling or going out. Publicity for the book had finished, but anxiety didn't. It started to just after book things, it started attaching itself to other things. I remember going to a friend's house and having a panic attack at her house. I remember having to go sit in the backyard. Then I started having panic attacks at the supermarket. And then I started having panic attacks in my own, my own lounge room. And would you say at this point, you basically became an agoraphobic? You really just couldn't go out? So it sort of was happening on and off. So they began in early 2013. It started happening on and off for the next couple of years. I remember going back to see my doctor. I tried a few different antidepressants. I was given Valium to try, but of course, that's a stopgap. You can't take that forever. All Valium ever really did was make me feel very relaxed in my body, 
but the panic would still be happening internally, which was almost worse because it felt like I was trapped then. And then at the start of 2016, it ramped up and it stopped being occasional and it started being constant. I was pretty much in a state of panic or intense high anxiety for weeks and then it became months. And that was most of 2016. I didn't really leave the house and I couldn't be alone. So like my husband drove me 500 kilometers to my parents' house because he couldn't stay with me the whole time because he had to work. I was with my parents for a few months, but then that became untenable for them. They didn't know how to take care of me either. So they were a bit like, you're going to have to come get her. But he actually retired. And after that, I thought, oh, now it's going to be okay because I'll have him home and I'll be able to get better. Because of course, I didn't understand why this was happening. All of these things that I used to love doing, traveling, going out to restaurants, going to friends' houses, speaking in public, gone. That was all gone from me. But in between here, you're also still writing books. You've been picked up by huge publishing houses. Yep. So you're still kind of functioning on one side, not able to be alone and not able to leave the house on the other other side. Yeah, exactly. And I realised that actually what is happening here is a crumbling, unnecessary crumbling. This is like a kind of ego death that has to happen. It's all the shit that I've built to keep myself safe for 35 years, all the old stories I believed about myself and told about myself, all this identity that I believed to keep me safe, it was just crumbling because I realised what had happened was my whole life I'd been going, when this happens, I'll feel better. When this happens, I'll feel better. So it was like when I move in with my boyfriend when I was a teenager, I'll feel better. When I get a better job in Darwin, I'll feel better. When I get a better salary, I'll feel better. When I leave Darwin, I'll feel better. When I was in Canberra, it's like, well, when we move closer to Adelaide, I'll feel better. Or when the babies are older, when they're weaned, when I'm getting more sleep, all of these things for 35 years, I'd been stepping forward thinking I'll feel better. And then finally, when my book was published and I realized I still didn't feel better, I've ticked all those boxes, I've got to stop running. So I stopped. And in 2016, I, yes, very, very, very stopped. Didn't leave the house. And when I finally gave up all of the fixes and the treatments and the trying to find the answers and just surrendered to it, it was hard. It was really, really hard. But that was sort of, I don't know, what do you want to call it? The beginning of the next phase, I suppose. Anxiety is still a part of my lexicon. I still can't get on a plane wouldn't do public speaking, but it's definitely changed. It's changed for me in that it's just really showed me all the ways I was really betraying myself or putting myself last. It's taught me to say no with love. It's also taught me to say yes with like a full-hearted yes. It's allowed me to really see what is a yes for me and what's a no. Oh God, it's taught me a lot of things, but I'm still, I'm still sort of learning to understand them. I think it's really just showing me all the ways that I'd really let myself down and was believing things about myself that weren't true. Believing everybody else's labels, Mm. you know, like that you have to be friendly all the time and you have to make everybody happy all the time. And, oh, that you're responsible for the way everybody feels all the time. It's just all, it's all, it's all lies. I mean, it's all survival mechanisms but they just didn't serve me anymore. So, and finding out who I really, really am. Right. Under all of the puppetry of bubbly, happy Kim, who's such a pleasure to work with. Who am I really? What really makes me happy? What do I really need? What do I really, really want? You put some of this experience 
into your most recently published book, um, The Other Side of Beautiful. It's not you in the book, but you took a lot of the experiences that you've had with anxiety and you made them part of this character. And it's been a really popular book. You know, I think as an artist, all I'm really doing is trying to make sense of my own world, trying to unpack the world as I see it through my own lens. And so making up these characters and making up these stories is a way of expressing my reality as I see it. And it's really obviously, like you say, the character isn't me. And when I was writing The Other Side of Beautiful, that was really just a way for me to externalise a huge what if. When I was sort of stuck in the house and I couldn't go out and I didn't understand what was happening to me, I didn't understand where the world had gone. This world that I loved all of a sudden just felt so hostile. Everything felt hostile. It was like my safety net was gone. Writing The Other Side of Beautiful, so putting an agoraphobic character in a camper van and flinging her from Adelaide to Darwin across Australia burning her house down, me to exercise a what if. I thought, what if I could do that? What would that be like? I mean, every book that I've written is a version of my own what if. You know, it's, it's a way of taking my feelings and putting somebody else through them in a different way just to see what that would be like. You know, it's just sort of my seeing from inside my little perspective. And it's really amazing to me that that connects with people because... It's sort of what I want to do. I want to connect with people in a way that is safe. You know, fiction is safe because it's made up. The reason people, I think, connected so much with the agoraphobic character in The Other Side of Beautiful was not just because she was able to give words to what anxiety feels like. And I've actually had a lot of people email me and say, my friend, sister, cousin experiences anxiety, but I don't. And I didn't know what it was like until I read your book, which I thought was amazing. And I think people are often shocked by this, but your books are funny. All the way through all of your books is this kind of you have a sense of humour. And I suppose that even though you're often writing about some big topic, yeah, this funniness. Yeah. I think the humour in my books is just my way of poking fun at the way anxiety tries, tries to take life very seriously. You know, so that's sort of therapy for me too, is making light of it. That always helps me. It's also really interesting that this new book that's coming out in April, The Fancies, is by far the funniest book that I've written, at least in my perspective. But it's also the hardest book I've ever written. And I did not think it was funny at all when I was writing it. It wasn't until I'd finished writing it and I read it back that I went, this is so funny. When did this get funny? (laughs) It was really a hard book to write for you. I just remember how much you would tell me it was so hard. Like I may well have just, you know, cut open my veins and just etched it on a tablet in my own blood. That's how it felt. I just complained the whole time. It's because I was mining some stuff that I didn't even know was there. Anxiety was a messenger that came to say, hey, you can't keep this up anymore. Let's rest. Let's stop. Let's make conscious all the unconscious things you believe about yourself that aren't true. Let's make conscious all the stories that don't serve you anymore. Let's look at all the ways you're letting yourself down. Let's look at all the ways you're putting yourself last. Let's find out who you are. And all of that is hard, but it's like the further you get through it, the more you lift up your layers, they in one respect become less acute, but in another become harder because they're the deepest shit. Mm -hmm. So writing this book, you know, as I said, each book is my view of the world. I didn't even realize at the time that I was writing this book because, of course, this book upcoming is about a woman who returns home after 20 years away. 
and I recently returned home after 20 years away. <laughs> I started thinking about writing it when I was thinking about moving home. And so that's where it came in. But I didn't know, and which now is a bit like, why didn't you see it? It's obvious. But I didn't know that I was going to be mining stuff that I've felt 20 years ago. I really didn't. I put my character through, like I always do, something far more difficult than I went through in order to just try and examine it in a different way. So do you think your writing's like your own form of self-therapy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what artists do. That's the way we see the world. It's definitely just a way for me to try and make sense of in the world I live in and creating something out of nothing. One of the things that you came to me with when you were doing all this excavating of all your beliefs was around the way you saw money. Money! So interesting because, I mean, like everything else in life, we're given certain stories about money and we just believe them unconditionally until they stop working for us. But what I think has been so interesting is realising that because, you know, I put money in its own little category. It's over here. Like there's me and my life and everything in it over here and money's over here. What you taught me was that if you can see money as a way of creative expression in the world and energy flow and money is just kind of another part of how you show up and express who you are in the world. As a creative, that really spoke to me because of course that makes a lot of sense. It's just another form of energy flow in the world money do you remember the ipad i suddenly found myself thinking maybe i want an ipad and i remember messaging you saying do you have an ipad like do you need it do you think i'd get much use out of it and you wrote back to me and you were like ah you just want one so buy one but you're trying to like justify a need for it so that was a big big lesson to me so i did buy myself an ipad purely because i wanted one and it was so hard at the time but it was such a big step and all of a sudden i realized that i'd been denying myself things that i wanted purely because i couldn't justify the need and that purely just came down to not believing that i was worth it and so i would see other people's outward expression of spending on themselves needlessly and i would judge that but really it was just something that I wished I could do because I wished I valued myself enough for people who grow up with this idea of good people are sensible with money there's the other camp who just spent and then we put lots of judgment around who these people are based on spending yeah that's right overspending can get us into trouble but I think what I found so interesting when I was doing a lot of work around my money blocks was underspending can have its own set of problems. And I think that's so interesting because that flies in the face of the money lessons we learned growing up, which we're good because we don't overspend, we save. But actually there's a real blockage there that also stops us receiving. If you want to get a bit woo, I'd been saying to the universe, I just need a little bit more freedom with money. I, you know, I'd like to be have a bit of more freedom to buy the things that I want, but I would have the money savings to buy the thing that I want and I'd be too fucking scared to buy it. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn to actually let go and learn to spend money. Like if I want more money to come in, I've got to be okay with spending more of it. It's like breastfeeding. <laughs> the more you breastfeed, the more you make. That's right. If you want milk to come out, you've got to take milk out. Hey, that's a great way to look at it. I've never looked at it that 
you know, we like to bring everything back to, um, as my, as my sister is always saying, it's amazing your ability to, to oh, make comparisons to birth and breastfeeding with everything. Thank is, you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Isn't this the interesting thing? The more you start looking at your life and looking at what holds us back and what blocks us, it's like, it just continues to show us more and more and more. And also the themes across different topics are often so in alignment. I mean, if you want to look at it as that your external reality is a mirror of what's going on for you internally, when it starts to chafe, you know, the, the opportunity to unpack it and have some understanding and some validation for it, it, it's phenomenal. And I mean, I'm just so lucky that I have you just at the end of my phone, like all the time. It's so good. It's reciprocal. That's the nice thing of a think about our very long friendship is there's been so much cross-learning you know what you learn you share with me what I learn I share with you so. And so you know as just this past weekend I made like an investment that I've never made before you know um and you were the first person I walk out of the shop and I'm texting you and I'm like I feel sick and you're like tell me how much and I tell you and you're like eh it's fine and I instantly felt better I was like that's okay it's fine <laughs> once we learn so much about how to unpack our own beliefs we can then go on and help other women unpack theirs it's a constant learning journey and a constant mastering. Yeah. Women are already smart. Just having a space to kind of talk about it and see it a little bit differently can just open up so much. And then we go forwards with all our own innate wisdom yeah. that we already have inside of us, you know, it just sometimes takes someone else to believe in us and not judge us. And that's so true. What you're just saying about it's innate wisdom. Yeah. Women are smart. They already know the answers. It's just for thousands of years we've been told that we don't know what we're doing. And it's not been safe for us to speak out either. Mm. So to have a safe space where they can actually go, hey, I think actually this is what I want to do or I think this is the answer and have somebody go, then that's beautiful. That's so life-changing. It's mm. so life-changing. And it's so necessary. Like that is what this world needs. This world is so broken and it cannot go on like this. That's why everyone has anxiety. If every single person in the world suddenly felt safe to love themselves and value themselves and be themselves, uh, we would have world peace overnight. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the systems wouldn't like it, but the systems, they're crumbling. The systems be crumbling. Yeah. I think we only have good things in the future. I honestly really do believe that. I know it doesn't look like that right now if you go on the internet, but I really do think the future is bright. So where are things at for you now? And yeah, what does your future hold? Oh, good question. I think we're at the calm before the storm at the moment. I'm sort of five weeks out from book publication. So I'm just sort of resting. That'll keep me busy for a while. And you've created this life yourself. You have sheep and food that you grow and you have land and that's something that you've really created for yourself and I think the other thing too about anxiety has taught me is it's just really slow slowly drilled me home into finding what home is for me so I am growing my own food which I've always wanted to do and I just do it without any pressure or expectations on myself which means it's just a constant joy even when nothing's happening so I think maybe the better answer to what the future holds is, as I just really hope that there's more and more emergence of the true me and being able to express who I am in the world and just show up and create my own reality the way I want to see it. So how can women find you and read your amazing words and look out for your upcoming book? 
Oh, okay. Well, I have a website, kimlock.com.au, where they can find all the information about all my novels and also where and how they can buy them. I am on Facebook. It's at Kim Lock Author. And they can get in touch with me that way too through DM. And what's the name of your next book? And can you give us a, a bit of a synopsis? Okay, it's called The Fancies and it comes out on the 5th of April in Australia and New Zealand. It's about a woman who is just out of her second stint in prison and she returns very reluctantly to the hometown that she left 20 plus years ago. And when she left, she was 17 and she swore she was never ever coming back and when she comes back this very small insular crayfishing town basically just implodes and it takes place over a few days after she gets back and it's got a lot of characters and a lot of rumor and a lot of made-up drama <laughs> it's gonna be fun and the thing about your books is they're very quintessentially Australian aren't they Yes, people say that. They're very, very Australian. So this is a very classic, small Aussie town kind of mystery slash comedy slash drama. <laughs> so good. It's got a lot of dry Aussie humour and colloquialisms in it. So, Kim, is there anything that you would like to share before we wrap it up? I really just think that if there's one piece of advice I can give women, it is find somebody to help you discover who you are. And do that every day because I think that's the greatest gift you can give to yourself and to your family and to the world. I mean, the world needs women to remember who they are. Beautiful. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Lisa. This has been so much fun. Thank you for listening. I'm so happy you could join us. If you would like to know more about how to transform your business, birth, or life, you can connect with me via my Instagram at lisa.masters. I'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it in your stories and tag me. That's all for now. Until next time.